you may have seen a story this week in the Washington Post uh, about a giant sinkhole that opened on a road in San Joaquin, California. It's the result of some recent torrential rain and, and flooding. Um, but the fact that a sinkhole opened on a road in San Joaquin, California, is not itself enough of a reason uh, for it to end up as a story in the Washington Post. So why was it there? Well, it was a story that made it to the Post because although the California Highway Patrol had closed the road with barricades and clearly marked it with signs, because this is America, people still have been exercising their freedom to ignore the warnings and drive down the road anyway. And lo and behold, each of those cars ended up where? At the bottom of the sinkhole. And this just seemed like a perfect parable of human nature. So we think that freedom means the right to do what we want, when we want, where we want, how we want, with whomever we want, without any hindrance or interference. And if any outside authority or standard seeks to bridle or curtail that freedom, it's oppressive. Rightly understood, freedom doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want without any consequences. And it doesn't mean freedom to disobey any rules that you don't like or happen to find inconvenient at the time. This is just as true for us as citizens of God as it is for citizens of the Republic. Galatians has been all about getting the gospel right. If you get the gospel right, Paul says, there's freedom. Freedom from the condemnation due to our sin. Freedom from the enslaving and imprisoning power of the law. Freedom from the endless treadmill of trying to earn enough to merit God's favor. As Paul's wrapped up his, his lengthy defense of the gospel of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, he, he summarized it with an, an exclamation and an exhortation to freedom. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Justified in Christ, we are, are freed from slavery to sin and any attempts to earn righteousness through our works. Now in the passage before us today, Paul addresses a, a related issue and one that's inevitable to come up if we're truly preaching the gospel of grace. See, if we're saying that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and not our works, then it leads to this inevitable question of do our works matter at all? Won't this teaching just lead to a life of sinful indulgence? Does gospel freedom mean that we're free to do whatever we want? Does preaching the gospel of grace actually undermine holiness? Seems like it was one of the concerns that the false teachers in Galatia had. If you listen to Paul's gospel, well then you'll just go do whatever you want. It's not a new accusation, of course. Paul, 
Paul says in in Romans 3 that he and other Christians had been slanderously accused of saying, by preaching the gospel, let us do evil that good may result. And it's been so throughout church history from Paul's day to the present that whenever the true gospel of grace is preached, it has brought about this accusation. But despite what the opponents of, of grace might think, Scripture decisively does not teach that because we're saved by grace, we can do what we feel like at all times. The fact that we're justified by faith alone and not by works does not, therefore, render our works meaningless. And because of that external accusation from others who might say that that is the implication of what the gospel teaches, and because of the internal proclivity that we all have to buy into that lie, Paul now turns his focus to this question, What is the true nature of gospel freedom? And in the passage, Paul gives us three answers to that question. Gospel freedom doesn't mean freedom to sin. It doesn't mean freedom from struggle. But it does mean freedom to walk by the Spirit. Gospel freedom doesn't mean freedom to sin. It doesn't mean freedom from struggle. But it does mean Freedom to walk by the Spirit. First then, gospel freedom doesn't mean freedom to sin. Paul's emphasis on justification by faith in this book has been aimed at sinking this, this false gospel of his opponents. He's done that extensively. That's been the the bulk of what he has been focused on in this book. But Paul knows that there's actually two ways that the Galatians were in danger of getting the gospel wrong. The first is legalism, right? Relying on your own works for salvation. That's the false gospel being taught by Paul's opponents. That's the primary threat to the Galatians' spiritual welfare. And it was this this danger of encroaching legalism that led Paul to write the letter of Galatians to begin with. That's been the main target of his critiques. But there's another way of getting the gospel wrong as well. And that's what we might call license or licentiousness. This would be to use the freedom of the gospel as an excuse to go on sinning. It's what Paul warns of in verse 13 that we just read, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. License is like the mirror image of legalism. You can actually hear the, the parallel in how Paul addresses each, Galatians 5.1 and 5.13. He says that in Christ you are free, but, verse 1, Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Beware of legalism. In Christ you are free, but, verse 13, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. License. The one denies grace, the other abuses it. The one exchanges freedom for slavery, the other exploits freedom for sin. 
And despite appearing to be polar opposites, both legalism and license spring from the same rotten root. Both legalism and license are produced by a corrupted understanding of the gospel. They each begin with this erroneous assumption that our works only really matter if we, uh, matter if we can be justified by them. What differs then is how each reasons from that faulty premise to faulty practice. See, legalism says works only really matter if we can ju- be justified by them. The Bible says our works do matter, therefore we must be justified by our works. License, on the other hand, says works only matter if we can be justified by them. The Bible says we're justified by faith alone, therefore our works don't matter and we can do as we please. Neither legalism or license can conceive of how our works could possibly matter if they don't justify us. The only difference is what they do with that understanding, but at the root they're they're working with the same material. There's two ways of getting the gospel wrong, legalism and license. And our natural tendency, left to ourselves, is to swerve back and forth between the two. And part of the reason that that is our tendency is that we think that the antidote to the one is more of the other. It's like we're driving a car and suddenly find ourselves heading off the side of the road into a ditch. And rather than calmly turning the wheel and bringing ourselves back onto the road in an effort to to right ourselves, we yank the wheel violently the other way and end up not back in our lane, but on the other side of the road heading into oncoming traffic. Perceiving one extreme can lead to an overreaction, an overreaction that will land you in a different extreme. So we tend to view legalism and license as opposites on on a spectrum. And then we reason that because these are the two ends of this spectrum, the gospel, God's way, must be the center point between those two ends. So if we find ourselves drifting too far to the side of legalism, we think the solution is to lean back into license a little bit more. And if we find ourselves drifting too far into license, we think that we maybe need to lean back into legalism a little more. But two wrongs don't make a right. The antidote to error isn't the other error. It's the truth. The treatment for a wrong understanding of the gospel isn't another kind of wrong understanding of the gospel. It's a right understanding of the gospel. So we shouldn't imagine legalism and license, relying on the law and indulging the flesh as two extremes of a spectrum, but the gospel is the middle way between the two, and the prescribed treatment is is to add a little bit of one or the other until we arrive at a, at a balance. That's, that's not the right way to think about this. The gospel is not the center point between legalism and license. It's not the perfect mixture, the perfect balance between the two. Legalism and license are not so much opposites of each other as that they are both opposites of the gospel. The antidote to legalism isn't more license, and the antidote to license isn't more legalism. The solution to getting the gospel wrong, however it's done, 
is not getting the gospel wrong in a different way. The antidote to both legalism and license is Jesus. The solution to getting the gospel wrong is getting the gospel right. Both the truths of justification by faith and sanctification by the Spirit. Let's see, stop and think. Why would Paul think the Galatians needed to hear this caution at this juncture, though? I don't know that there's been any indication, uh, in particular, that the false teachers were saying this or that there were other false teachers who were teaching the opposite error, though those kind of false teachers did exist in the early church. We read about them in the book of Jude, those who, who twist the grace of God for immorality. The problem here is in not external false teachers. The problem, as Paul knows, is that we all have our own internal false teacher who whispers to us that the way to be rid of legalism is through embracing a license to sin. We carry with us a, a fifth columnist, a collaborator, who is intent on sabotaging God's work of grace in our lives, conspiring to lead us into temptation and sin. And Paul calls this collaborator the flesh. That leads us to the second point. Gospel freedom does not mean a freedom to sin, and it does not mean freedom from struggle. That is, gospel freedom doesn't mean freedom from the struggle with sin. This can be very frustrating for those who love Jesus. We can be easily discouraged in our lives as Christians, not uh, because we, we think that as those who are redeemed and justified and adopted and born again, those loved by God, called according to his purpose, we think that it should just be easier for us not to sin. We think that because we're in Christ and his spirit dwells in us, that there shouldn't be a struggle. Obedience should basically be effortless. It should come as naturally as breathing. That's not what our experience tells us. More importantly, it's not what the Bible tells us either. The Bible says that the normal Christian life is one of struggle. And this is because that while through faith in Jesus we have been made truly new, we are not yet totally new. We continue to live with a foot in two worlds, already a new creation in Christ, but still living in the corruption of the present age. And as such, there will be a struggle, not just with the consequences of continuing to live in a, in a world that has fallen, but also a struggle with the corruption that continues to live inside of us. The problem of sin is not only one of relational alienation from God, nor only one of legal condemnation under his righteous judgment. It's also moral corruption in our own being. And through Christ, not only are we reconciled to God by the death of his Son and saved from the wrath of God through him, but we are also being made new by his Spirit. But unlike justification, which has been the emphasis for Paul this, to this point in the book, unlike justification, which is an instantaneous declaration, this 
Spiritual renewal, that we call sanctification, is a lifelong process of gradual transformation. And this process does not proceed in us unchallenged. The indwelling spirit is opposed by indwelling sin. So look at what Paul says in verse 17. as He highlights this. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Now this idea of the flesh is is not simply the body as opposed to the soul. Uh, It's not that that which is physical is bad and that which is not physical is good. That's actually an old teaching called Gnosticism that taught that everything that was created was evil, everything that was Uh, that was immaterial was good, and salvation was about being released from the material world because that was inherently bad and going to the immaterial world forever. And the Christians said, no, the future of God's people is life physically in a new heavens and a new earth. That which is material is not inherently bad. It's not just the body as opposed to the soul, although there does seem to be a tie to our mortal body in some way. Might be why Paul uses the term the flesh. But it's not simply the body, nor does it refer only to a specific type of sinful desire or uh, act of a, of a bodily nature. We hear the term the, the flesh, the sins of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, and I think probably prone to think about things uh, of a physical or sexual nature. Might be what we typically associate this term with, but it's more expansive than that. It certainly includes that, but it's, but it's bigger than that. The flesh is this overarching term that Paul uses to personify the sin and corruption that yet remains in us. Pardon me. The flesh is that within our person which is not yet renewed, that which is still conformed and conformable to the pattern of the world. While we speak of it as a distinct entity, it is not like it's a little person living inside of us pulling the levers that we can pass blame off of for our sin. It's not we can say, The flesh made me do it. I didn't want to. My flesh made me do it. Your flesh is you. We can't blame it for something else. It's part of us. And it goes beyond merely what we do with our body. It extends to the proclivities and desires of our hearts and minds and wills as well. Some of you may have the, <clears throat> the old NIV translation, the 1984 NIV, and that translation often translates this term as sinful nature. And I don't think that's very helpful. Actually, the new NIV has corrected that and now has the flesh. You translate it sinful nature. First of all, it's not what the word says. The word is flesh. <clears throat> 
But it's unhelpful because it gives you the impression that there's within us these two distinct natures, two distinct beings, one sinful, one spiritual, the old self and the new self. And in this view, Christians are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We just toggle back and forth between the two, the kind of spiritual schizophrenia. But that's not quite right. The old self, when we talk about the old self in the New Testament, our sinful nature, who we were in union with Adam, was crucified, died, and buried with Christ. And now we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Pardon me, I have a tickle in my throat. Just trying to gut through it. Satan apparently doesn't want you to hear this. So listen up. The old self was crucified with Christ. And now we've been raised to walk with Christ in newness of life. So Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He doesn't have the old Paul and the new Paul living inside him at the same time. To, be, uh, to, to, to say that would be to say that Christians are both unregenerate and regenerate at the same time. That's not right. As Christians, we have one new nature, born again by the Spirit. We're no longer in the flesh. We are now in the Spirit. We're no longer under sin's dominion. We're no longer citizens of that kingdom of darkness. We've been transferred to become kingdoms, uh, citizens of the kingdom of the beloved Son. So we're not under sin's rule anymore. But while this is true, it's likewise true at the same time that we still have the ability, and also far more often than we'd like, the desire to sin. We are no longer in the flesh, but we can still live according to the flesh. We can still submit ourselves to sin as if we were enslaved to sin. So at one time, we had no choice. We were in bondage to sin, but now we've been set free. We no longer have to obey sin, but we still can and often do. Though we're free from its dominion, we can still live according to its desires. That's why Paul says here in verse 17 that the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh, and they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. There's a struggle, a a battle within you between the Holy Spirit who dwells in you and has given you life and the flesh. It's a bit like if you think of yourself as a, a country that's been ruled by an oppressive dictator, sin. And Christ has invaded your life and by his almighty power has decisively defeated and dethroned sin, liberated the country, and set up his own righteous government. But although sin has been defeated, it has not been totally eradicated. The routed forces of uh, sin scatter into the countryside and continue to wage a, a guerrilla war, an insurgency against the new king. And so the spirit of Christ in you is conducting 
counterinsurgency operations against your flesh, mopping up remaining sin, rooting out resistance cells one by one. We hear that kind of language in the hymn we sang earlier, O Great God, O Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. True gospel freedom doesn't mean the absence of struggle. It actually means the presence of struggle. It doesn't mean the end of the war. It actually means the beginning of the war. A war, mind you, that has been decisively won by Christ. But a real war nonetheless. And we can be discouraged because we're prone to think that if the presence of, uh, of conflict in our lives it somehow indicates that we are poor Christians or carnal Christians or maybe not even Christians at all. Perhaps you've thought that or perhaps you've been taught that before. But we shouldn't be so discouraged. You know, Paul tells the Galatians this as a matter of course. Says This is just what is true about you now in Christ. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and they are in conflict with one another. If there is a struggle in us against sin, it means there is life. Sin does not wage a war where it already reigns. The flesh only begins its insurrection once it's been dethroned by Christ. What Paul presents here is not the sub-Christian life, but the normal Christian life. If Christ reigns in you by his spirit, there will be a war with the flesh. So it's not the presence of the internal struggle against sin that's the problem. The problem is if that struggle is absent. There's no struggle at all against sin. It's not an indication that all is well. It's an indication that there's no gospel freedom. If there's no battle being fought, then there's not been any liberation accomplished. But where there's gospel freedom, there will be struggle. Now, if we're not careful, we might also become discouraged because this can make it seem like sin is just inevitable. If there's going to be this lifelong struggle against sin, then what's the point of resisting at all? This would be to circle us back to the same place that we started. Shouldn't we just give up and go on sinning? There's no hope, so we might as well just give up and give in. We can feel sometimes with our sin, right? Well, that's true that we will never be totally free from sin until we're glorified with Christ. It doesn't follow that we are therefore uh, still under sin's rule. It doesn't follow that sin is therefore inevitable. We're no longer under its dominion. It's not our master. We're not, we're not in the flesh. We're under grace and in the spirit. In Christ and with his spirit dwelling in us, we're able to do something that previously 
and otherwise we could not do. We are able not to sin. That brings us to the final point. Gospel freedom doesn't mean freedom to sin. It doesn't mean freedom from struggle, but it does mean freedom to walk by the Spirit. Gospel freedom is not merely freedom from something, not just freedom from sin's penalty and enslaving power. It certainly does mean that, but it means more than that. Gospel freedom is not only freedom from something, it's freedom for something, freedom to something. Prior to our conversion, we were not free to desire or to do what pleases God. But now in the Spirit, we have been freed to do just that. We're free to walk by the Spirit, following His lead, obeying His voice, aligning ourselves with His desires. Walking by the Spirit is the gospel solution to the problem of license. That's what he says in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, these aren't two separate commands. It's an exhortation and a result. So he doesn't say, walk by the Spirit and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It is the way to not indulge the flesh, the way to not gratify its desires, is to walk by the Spirit. For example, Paul can say in verses 13 and 14 that instead of indulging the flesh, and here, in this particular context, what he, he calls out as an example of indulging the flesh is biting and devouring one another in relational strife, Instead of indulging the flesh, walking by the Spirit will lead us to serve one another humbly in love, which is actually the fulfillment of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so paradoxically, it's not by submitting to the law, but only by walking by the Spirit that the law can be fulfilled in us. Now, if that's the case, then we need to ask, what does it actually mean to walk by the Spirit? Or to be led by the Spirit, as he says in verse 18. I'll give you a few suggestions uh, with some help from the book of Romans. Like I said before, Romans 6 through 8 are really just an, an expansion, an explanation of what all this looks like, a, sort of a commentary on its own of Galatians 5. So, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? First and foremost, it means considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in Romans 6, after his other lengthy explanation of justification by faith, Paul asks this rhetorical question that he expects from his readers. As he's expounded the, the glories of grace, he, he anticipates that his readers will say, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Shall we just keep sitting if we're justified by faith alone? And Paul answers, of course, by no means. And the first step in not going down that road, Paul says, his first command in the book of Romans is this, 
Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Walking by the Spirit means counting what the Word of God says about those who are in Christ to be true. They're no longer condemned, that the Spirit of God dwells in them, that sin's dominion over them has been irrevocably broken. But it's more than just believing that this is true in general about those who trust Christ. Paul says we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. It means believing the Spirit's testimony in the Word is not only true, but true for you. It may not feel that sin's dominion has been broken in your life. It may not feel that sin is no longer your master, that it can no longer compel your obedience to its desires. If you're anything like me, it often feels like we're still under sin's power. But our feelings are not the barometer of truth. Feelings can respond to facts in belief or disbelief, but feelings can't establish facts. If you're in Christ, the fact is that you are not under sin, you're under grace. Yes, you still have the ability to sin. Yes, you still sometimes have the desire to sin. Yes, sometimes you still do sin, but no, you are not enslaved to sin. You don't have to sin. You've been set free by the Spirit. And sin and the flesh and the devil would love nothing more for, for you to believe that you are still under its power. So the first step to walking in the Spirit is to consider this gospel fact to be true and true for you. Do you believe that you don't have to sin? Until you count that to be true of you, you will continue to live more as one enslaved than one emancipated. Second, walking by the Spirit means setting your minds on the things the Spirit desires. Romans 8.5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. See the same thing in Romans 12.2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, and it's the It's the flesh, living according to the flesh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What you put into your mind matters. What you fill your thoughts with affects your spiritual health. It's like learning to eat a healthy diet. We need to retrain ourselves not to live on the world's greasy junk food but on the meat of God's word, truth revealed, unchanged, unchanging. So there are things in your life that that you dwell on that then lead you to meditate and fixate on sinful desires. Things that you justify doing or watching or reading as an exercise of Christian freedom, but which themselves lead you to fill your mind with things that are false, worthless, and wicked. 
If not directly so, do you do this with things that at least cause you to lower your defenses, sedate your inhibitions, numb your conscience just a bit, making a strike by the enemy that much more effective? Are there things in your life that the Spirit of God might be putting his finger on right now, saying, this thing stirs your affections for sin more than Christ? And you may need to consider taking steps to remove that thing from your life. But it's not just about cutting out spiritual junk food. We also need to be committed to the regular intake of healthy, nutrient-rich spiritual food. The regular intake of Scripture, which is the sword of the Spirit, the instrument by which God wages war against the flesh. The Word is how the Spirit authoritatively speaks to us and calls us to keep in step with Him. So we can't, we can't sit back and say, I feel so tempted when we consider that we're not receiving into our hearts the Word of God, right? Psalm 119, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sometimes we inadvertently try to pit the Spirit and the Bible against one another, saying that a, a, a direct word from the Spirit guiding us, leading us, uh, encouraging us would be of greater value or certainty than the Word of God. But friends, don't forget that it's the Spirit who wrote the book. It's His. And it's not just what He said, it's what He is saying now. It's a present word by which the Spirit speaks to the church. If you want to know how to walk by the Spirit, commit yourself to listening to His voice in the Scriptures. Consider the amount that you intake from other sources and the amount that you intake from the Word of God. That doesn't mean that the only thing you can do is sit around and read the Bible, but it does mean that we should carefully consider what we're putting into our minds. If what we're putting into our minds is more likely to push us toward Christ or further away from Him, to make us more sensitive to His Spirit or more calloused. And finally, walking by the Spirit means making no provision for the flesh. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To make provision for something is to provide for its welfare and success, to supply its needs, to give it opportunity and aid. And this is, this is actually what Paul means in Galatians 5.13 when he says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That word translated indulge is actually just the word opportunity. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And in Greek, this word opportunity is used more broadly to refer to a base of operations from which an expedition can be launched. So Paul's exhortation here is for us not to allow our gospel freedom to become a beachhead for sin in our lives. A place where it can ship in and distribute supplies for its campaign against our growth and holiness. 
It's part of the reason we can end up feeling like we continue to be under the power of sin, why the flesh can sometimes seem, feel like it's winning, is simply because we make provision for it. The flesh is like a rebel waging a war against the rightful ruler of our hearts. We can often be like those who give aid and comfort to the enemy. We clothe and feed and hide and protect it, and in so doing, we allow it to become stronger. We don't starve it and oppose it and fight against it. We make provision for, give opportunity to the flesh. When we give it inroads into our lives, and it's true, we can't avoid all temptation, but we can be intentional about not purposely placing ourselves in the path where temptation is sure to find us. And then to look expectantly for it. And then when we fall into sin, saying, why? Why do I always do this? Martin Luther put this well. He said, you can't stop a bird from flying over you, but you can stop it from building a nest on your head. So I want you to consider, are there things that you do things that you tell yourself you're free to do that you may need to stop doing because of how they create an opportunity for the flesh. Put it differently. Do you need to exercise your freedom in Christ, your freedom from the enslaving power of sin, to choose not to do something? rather than justifying your ability to do it. Because freedom in Christ is not just a freedom to do things, it is now a freedom to choose not to do things that before sin compelled you to do. I'm going to give you just one example. I think for many Christians, one place where they make provision for the flesh is social media. Social media can be used for good and edifying purposes, but sadly it seems like the, the preponderance of social media interactions devolve into a cesspool of wickedness. The time we spend on social media causes us to cultivate jealousy and to rage. It leads us to say things to and about others that we would be ashamed to say in public, but are quite happy to do so behind the anonymity of a keyboard. It leads us to dissension and strife between brothers and sisters who are equally committed to the lordship of Jesus and the authority of Scripture. It leads us to become, frankly, it leads us to become just like the world. For many people, I suspect that social media engagement can act as a forward operating base for the flesh. And if that's you, are you willing to exercise your gospel freedom to curtail or give up your right to social media for the sake of your spiritual health? Other examples that we could give that are like that. And that's the question we have to ask. If there is something that is creating opportunities for the flesh, it's stirring our affections for sin and for our idols instead of for Christ, we need to ask, are you willing to give that up? that you might gain Christ? If the answer is no, it might communicate that you still love your sin more than your Savior. 
Gospel freedom means freedom to walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, Paul says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh will tempt you to abuse grace. It will seek to convince you that that the gospel gives you the freedom to sin, and it will likewise try to persuade you that because you are struggling with sin, everything is hopeless and you should just give in. The flesh will try to get you to exploit your freedom and drive around the barricades and the stop signs because, hey, you're free. And in the end, you'll just end up in the bottom of a sinkhole in San Joaquin with a totaled car. Though the struggle is real and the temptation is strong, Christian, you are not enslaved to it. You don't have to obey that desire. Christ has set you free. The gospel has freed you from that slavery to walk by the Spirit instead. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have freed us. You have called us to freedom. Apart from any of our works, you have saved us. But Lord, you have saved us that you might conform us to the image of your Son. That you might renew us day by day. So we pray that you would do that work in us, convict us where we need to be convicted, console and comfort us where it is necessary. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. That even when we do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We pray in his name. Amen.